Ghanan Family Office Services. We protect and preserve the wealth of the world's rich and famous. But having a good lawyer is only part of the solution. My podcast, How to Keep Your Money, draws on my 30 years experience and my extensive network of professional advisors to better inform you. Subscribe to our podcast and learn from the professionals on how to keep your money. This is episode 13 of How to Keep Your Money. I'm Caroline Garnham of Garnham Family Office Services, specialist lawyers to the ultra high net worth community. I'm joined in the studio today by Craig Swart, partner of Jersey law firm Dickinson Gleason, which this year won the IFC Boutique Law Firm of the Year 2020. Craig also has his own accolades. Chambers and Partners says of Craig he is incredibly tenacious very solution-driven, and very pragmatic. He's efficient in suggesting a way forward in a no-nonsense type manner. Born in South Africa, Gray qualified as a South African lawyer before coming to Jersey, training as an English solicitor, and then qualifying as a Jersey lawyer. Welcome, Craig, to How to Keep Your Money. You are a partner in boutique law firm Dickinson Gleason, but you were not born in Jersey. In fact, you were born in South Africa, a beautiful, warm, sunny country, which you left to live and work in Jersey. Why was that? Not for the weather. <laughs> um, I was I practiced in South Africa as an attorney, uh, specialising in private wealth, insolvency, and commercial work. And after about eight years, I've become a partner in the firm that I was with. Um, I had a wanderlust. Uh, I wanted to work somewhere else in the world, primarily around where there was a lot of money. And a job opportunity became available in Jersey back in 2002. Uh, I applied for it. They had a work out a visa for me. I got to Jersey and I haven't left. And why did you become an English solicitor? Well, the. Um, in those days, you couldn't uh, do the Jersey bar exam unless you were from um, specific jurisdictions, primarily um, country, countries that have uh, a legal system which is more or less the same as the UK, such as Australia and New Zealand. Um, and well, there's, there's a list in the statute for advocates uh, and solicitors in Jersey. So what I had to do first was qualify as an English solicitor before I could take the Jersey bar exam. So it was a bit of a, a long process to get to where I wanted to get to. So the I had to do the English exams first, and then later on I did the Jersey bar exams. And you say that's quite tricky doing the Jersey bar exams. The Jersey bar exams in those days, obviously all the guys would like to say in our day, and in those days it was tougher, but it was generally tougher uh, at the moment's. Um, they have a Jersey Law School, and there is a fixed curriculum with proper textbooks and study guides. When I uh, studied for the Jersey bar exams, there, there was no specific curriculum. There were no study guides. There was no law school. So you effectively had to beg, borrow, and steal old notes of chaps that had qualified, and ladies that had qualified, obviously, and put together your own set of notes. 
and then it's hit and miss. I don't think there are many uh, Jersey advocates from that from those days that could say that they passed first time round, other than my partner James Gleason, who loves to brag about the fact that he passed all six exams in one sitting, or at least uh, all at the same time. It took me two goes to pass, and I think uh, most Jersey lawyers took a while to get through the exams because they're pretty tough. They're set by existing ag- advocates who naturally in those days wanted to keep the numbers down uh, and make it as tough as possible. I mean, a lot of folks just give up or gave up in those days. I remember one chap sat, sat the Jersey bar exams six times and then he gave up. <laughs> anyway, so that's how I became a Jersey advocate. And you joined Dickinson Gleason. I mean, they were only formed in... 2010. Yeah, so, so I, I knew the two Jameses, James Dickinson, James Gleason, from my days at the first firm that I worked at in, in Jersey, Adele Christen. Uh, so I'd always been friends with them, and I kept a BDR on the on the steady progress of their small firm, and I joined three, three years after they'd started up. And uh, we've been going great guns since. I first came across Dickinson Gleason, as you probably know, uh, soon after they were formed. I was a professional executor looking for a good litigator to represent me. All other firms on the island were conflicted since it was a very substantial estate with lots of parties involved. I therefore experienced what it's like going before a commissioner in the Royal Court of Jersey, represented by Dickinson Gleason. Uh, From my limited experience, the court system in Jersey is highly engaged, experienced, and knowledgeable. What is your view, Greg? Well, it's one of the attractions of Jersey is that we've got a very good judiciary. Uh, Our judges are high class. They're highly regarded. Their judgments are often referred to and relied upon in other Commonwealth uh, jurisdictions, especially ones that have uh, English trust law as, as part of their legal system. And in many respects, Jersey, as tiny as it is and as small uh, as its court is, produces stellar judgments that are relied upon and referred to by English courts in particular on a regular basis. Now, that's a product of the success of the Jersey finance industry, which has gone back, you know, goes back to mid-50s when it was sort of started and trust law became part of uh, the Jersey finance uh, financial services system, and because there are so many, there were so many, and there are so many trusts that are administered out of Jersey, there are ongoing issues around the administration of trusts that invariably land up in court. And the judges themselves are all former uh, practitioners in the island who've practiced uh, private practice primarily around uh, the, um, advising and, and dealing with trusts and trust disputes. So the experience is, is um, of the highest um, order and highest quality uh, with the result that wealthy people are smart. They want to know that they can have their wealth looked after, administered, protected in a jurisdiction where the laws protect their interests. And there's clarity around the laws. So there's no, there's no ongoing arguments in, in theory about, you know, is it this or is it that? And Jersey provides a pretty clear picture for trustees, wealthy people, and their families when it comes to, you know, if there becomes an issue, how will it be resolved? Will it be resolved? Are there smart people in Jersey dealing with these issues? And will my money be protected? And tell me a little bit about 
the structure, you've got a bailiff, this is something we don't have in the UK, and you've got commissioners and, and jurats. How do they all fit in together? So the court on the face of it looks like any other ancient courthouse, um, and the the bailiff is the chief justice. Uh, he has deputies, the deputy bailiff, and then we have commissioners who are permanent sitting judges. There are five in all, so you bailiff, deputy bailiff, and, and three full-time commissioners. Those three full-time commissioners are themselves, sorry, two of them are themselves, the two former uh, bailiffs, uh, and then the, the third commissioner is a highly regarded trust lawyer as well. Um, the, the, whenever a court sits to determine matters of law and fact, uh, the judge is always accompanied by two jurats. The jurats are usually drawn from sort of the high echelons of civil society, folk that are experienced invariably in the trust industry, so I mean, former managing directors of banks or trust companies, for example, people that are experienced in, in, in the financial services industry primarily. What they do is they determine matters of fact. So if you're in court and you're telling the story and they're listening to the evidence, they will determine matters of fact. If the, if the two of them differ, then the judge sitting will have the casting vote. The judge determines matters of law, uh, as may apply in any case. So that's our system. It's very different from the UK, and it's obviously from what you've said that, that Jersey is not part of the United Kingdom and doesn't follow UK common law. Um and of course, trust is a common law concept. Yes. However, Jersey is now recognised as one of the most mature jurisdictions for the establishment of trust, as you were talking a little or alluded to a little bit earlier on. A common law concept for wealthy families across the globe um, is what the establishment of trusts are. Tell me how and when this came about in in a in a in a, a, a non common law country. So Jersey, Jersey, Jersey's um, basic uh, law in the UK. The UK legal system refers to the fact of their common law. They have their common law. We we call it customary law, but it's the same thing. So customary law is what has developed over many generations um, of, of of in our case the Jersey civilization. Jersey was never part of. Um, the UK. It's an accident of history. It was a protectorate and part of Normandy. Obviously, Norman, uh, the Normans conquered the UK, took over uh, the U took over England, and England became part of the Duchy of Normandy. When the Normans got kicked out of uh, the UK, everybody forgot about Jersey, and Jersey somehow stayed as a protectorate of the UK, and the Jersey men stayed loyal to the English crown. And I think during the Civil War, one of the English kings took refuge in the castle. And ever since then, he gave the Jersey men the right to determine their own taxes. So we've never been part of uh, the UK, but we are subject to, uh, we're protected by the UK in theory. The Second World War didn't work because Hitler came in, took over the islands, but that was just to prevent a massacre. So the, the British didn't defend the island at, at the time. Um, so have, having been given a special dispensation when it came to determining and working out its own tax laws, Jersey has always been very careful to uh, apply and implement its own tax systems. And that has always been, that's been useful in the sense that from and after the 1950s, when the controller of income tax at the time 
uh, I think it was George Bedell, had introduced this idea of making Jersey, I wouldn't call it a tax haven, we call it a financial services center. People from different parts of the world call it a tax haven. But it became a, a, a tax neutral or tax friendly jurisdiction for people to park their wealth. And in parking their wealth, the trust was a useful concept for the financial services to adapt. And obviously, there were a lot of English trained lawyers that came to the island and they brought trust law with them and set up and administered trusts out of Jersey. And as trust developed in popularity and use, the legal system had to adapt around it. So the courts would start applying English law to the administration of trusts and disputes that arose. And then in 1984, the state of Jersey uh, uh, adopted a, a statute called the Trust Jersey Law, which codifies to an extent trust uh, legal legal concepts and trust laws. So we don't, our customary law didn't have trusts. They've been brought in via the English legal system. But you do have a clash now and again between Jersey customary law and English law when, when it comes to applying trusts. We're probably going to talk about insolvent trusts, but that Jersey customary law around insolvency is one of the areas where there has been a clash with English trust law. Thank you for bringing that up because I want to, it leads me very nicely on to my next question. Craig, you are on record as having acted for the Z trusts, the insolvent discretionary trusts of the Chengiz brothers, Robert and Vincent, uh, which were governed by Jersey law. Through these offshore trusts, the brothers invested heavily in property-rich companies, hospitality and retail, backed by the Icelandic Kalpthang Bank. After the 2008-07 crash, the Kalpthang Bank collapsed and with it brought down the Chengiz Empire. The litigation which ensued, and I believe is still ongoing, centers around who is going to be liable for these losses. If not the Chengiz brother, brothers, then who and why? So the Chengiz brothers are two very colorful um, multi-billionaires of, I think they're of Iranian uh, descent. And when, when we refer to Chengiz brothers in the context of this particular case, it's actually only the one brother. Uh, Robert Chengiz, and I think they became known to the media and probably to the wider public because following the collapse of Kalpthing Bank, the liquidators uh, had alleged that they'd been involved in a in a fraud on, on Kalpthing, the Icelandic bank, which had collapsed, leading to the serious fraud office um, conducting a dawn raid on their homes very early in the morning while they were still in their pyjamas and arresting them. Uh, as it turned out, the brothers applied for the setting aside of the search and arrest warrants, and then they sued the serious fraud office for obviously for all the embarrassment that it caused. The serious fraud office had to pay out quite a substantial amount of money in, in relation to that wrongful arrest. Um, but as I said, the case which continues in Guernsey only relates to the one brother, Robert Changes. His um, brother, Vincent Changes, has nothing to do with this particular case. And the case in Guernsey revolves around Robert Chengiz's trust, which is called the Chengiz Discretionary Trust. It's well known in the media and it's been highly reported. As you say, the litigation has been going on for a long time. It kicked off in, in, in 
in 2010, when the liquidators of Captain Bank had a look at the affairs of Captain Bank, discovered that the loan book was heavily exposed uh, to the Chang'e's discretionary trust, or at least exposed to companies that were owned by the trust. Um, I think that 40% of the loan book, Kalpting's loan book, was to, to these entities. Uh, Kalp, the Kalpting liquidators, I think the Grant Thornton appointees, appointed liquidators over companies that are owned by, by the trust. Now, if you're a wealthy person, you kind of isolate your personal liabilities to creditors by parking your assets in a trust and then entrusting your assets to the trustees. Uh, under English law, trustees are personally liable. So what the trustees then try and do is one step further to protect and isolate the assets. They, they will park assets in various companies, and those various companies will be for specific projects. You know, so for example, buying a service station or buying a, you know, a suite of office, office blocks in central London. So it, as you say, it, it built up this, this empire of property owning companies within his trust looked after by trustees. And when the Kalpting liquidators came knocking and they asked these various companies which had borrowed heavily from Kalpting to pay back, the companies said, oh, well, actually, we've lent the money on to the trustee. And then the trust trustee was saying, oops, we don't have any money to pay back the companies so that they can pay back Kalpting Bank. There were assets. Uh, and once the liquidators had realized as much as they could, the pot wasn't big enough to pay back ultimately the liquidators of Kalpting Bank. So, but am I right in saying that Chengiz himself was not liable for those losses? Unless he'd signed a personal guarantee, which he hadn't, uh, there was no personal liability uh, on him. One of his problems was that the very expensive house he lives in, or lived and still lives in, is owned by a company which sits underneath the trust. And obviously, the liquidators are very interesting getting to that. So he's fought tooth and nail over the past 10 years to try and isolate and protect that, that particular asset, which is worth quite a lot of money. And that's where he lives with his family, um, from the liquidators, from the liquidators getting their, their hands on that asset. So it's been a long process for the receivers in trying to claw assets back into the pot to be able to pay back to the major creditor, which was the liquidators of Kalpting Bank. And obviously, they've all got their own creditors lining up and hoping to be paid one of these days. So who is liable for those losses, if anyone? Well, that's the, that, that's been the big argument in the in the Guernsey courts, in, in the sense that the, the companies that were suing the trust said to the poor old trustee, which was Investec Trust Company, in those days, actually closed their trust business down after this case. Said to, said to the investing trustees, you personally liable because under English law, trustees are personally liable for debts. There's no separation of a trustee's estate from its trust assets under English law. Now, Jersey had adopted um, in its statute what we refer to all the time as Article 32, which is this exoneration provision or at least this protection provision, which says that where trust, where a person acts as trustee, he's not personally liable for the trust liability. So creditors can't come to the trustee personally and ask him to pay out of his own pocket for liabilities. But what the liquidators were arguing in Guernsey where this case was taking place, even though the trust is governed by Jersey law, they'd argued successfully before the court of first instance, Judge Chadwick, 
they'd argued successfully that that World Investec was personally liable for those debts. And, and he said, yes, Investec has to pay back any shortfall. And they appealed. And it's still ongoing, presumably. And it's still ongoing. So they appealed to the Guernsey Court of Appeal. The Guernsey Court of Appeal says, no, Article 32 works. It protects the trustee. He's not personally liable. Now, when my client came in, they took over from Investec uh, as trustee of this trust. And not only was Investec being sued personally by the company's liquidators, it was then also sued by my client as the new trustee asserting negligence against uh, Investec for not properly protecting trust assets from these claims. In other words, not further hiving them off and insulating them from creditors' claims. Mm. Yeah, that, that claim was dismissed at Court of First Instance and also Court of Appeal. It went all the way to the Privy Council, and the Privy Council's the Channel Islands' highest Court of Appeal, also the highest Court of Appeal for a lot of Caribbean islands. Um, and the Privy Council in 2018 finally ruled and said Article 32 is good. It's good news for trustees in the trust business. Otherwise, you know, who would want to be a trustee of these multi-million pound uh, collapses? From my experience, where there is a dispute within a wealthy family, the issues are not just commercial. I no. mean, in this particular case that you've been talking about, maybe they are. And the resolution of such a dispute is therefore rarely simply a matter of wearing the parties down until they reach a point at which they're prepared to compromise. These cases often go on for decades. I have one ongoing case which started in 2001 and is still ongoing, a dispute within the family. Is this your experience and how do the Jersey judges deal with such disputes? That is my experience when it comes to multi-million pound trusts with very um, with wide classes of family uh, members within the class of beneficiaries. So you've always got the patriarch. And it depends on how nice a person he's been and the culture he's created within his family. It depends on how <laughs> that has worked out um, as to how disputes, which then arise within the family, are then dealt with. Because often these very wealthy people, as the organ grounders, they are they dominant personalities. And quite often they use their wealth to create division and separation in the way they you know, manage their own personal benevolence. And they, and, they, and they dictate to the trustees as to who should get money or who should be excluded, you know, who's my f favorite son and daughter. So when it comes to family trusts where there is a lot of money involved, resolving disputes is more difficult than where you've got commercial parties involved, if I may put it that way, you know, where you've got people dealing with other people's money. It's, it's easier to, to negotiate and work through a commercial uh, resolution Whereas with family members, uh, it's almost as if there's nothing to lose. And Bob, who took my, my toy train when I was a baby, you know, he must get nothing and, and, and he will bleed and suffer as far as I'm concerned. Um, and you have that. We have many of those disputes. And the courts, you know, it ends up before the court and the court has to act like Solomon and uh, make a ruling. And usually it's good rulings where both sides are unhappy. Yeah, I've seen that. Um, Craig, you live in Jersey with your wife and young family. You are a keen swimmer and have swum from Jersey to France for charity and I believe you're now training to swim the Straits of Gibraltar. Do you miss the good weather of South Africa and what is good about swimming in the Channel as opposed to the warm waters around South Africa? 
Is there anywhere else you'd rather live and work as a lawyer and why? I do miss South Africa in many respects because you, we obviously have our family and friends down there and it's great in the summer. South Africa does have its winters, but they're not as harsh as, as the winters in the Northern Hemisphere. But having said that, I like the seasons and Jersey is known for having the best weather in the in the UK or at least within the United Kingdom. Our summers are long and would I work would I want to live and work anywhere else in the world? Probably not. One of the attractions of being in Jersey and being an outdoors person that loves the sea, there are no sharks. So you are swimming the bays around Jersey depending on the wind direction most weekends, even through the winter. Uh, and I know um, there's nothing scary that's going to eat or cause me cause me serious harm. I've, I, I swam the English Channel last year from Dover to uh, Cap Grez. Uh, that was that was my toughest uh, swim. I have swum Jersey to France. That was shorter, and I've swum around Jersey itself. And as you say, I'm planning planning to swim the Gibraltar Strait soon. It's a good way to take your mind off work and uh, meditate. That's fantastic. 15 hours in the seawater. Craig, thank you for joining me for today for episode 13 of How to Keep Your Money. Jersey is a small island, but without the constraints and interference of the EU, it has built a substantial and thriving financial business, which attracts business from some of the world's wealthiest families due to its well-developed and mature trust and financial business. Maybe now that the UK has left the EU, it can take a leaf out of Jersey's business book. Thank you, Craig, for joining us for episode 13 of How to Keep Your Money. <laughs>